If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Luke chapter 8? This is 4 through 15, and this is um, a unique kind of portion of Luke, which is the parable of the sower, and a, a really beautiful, wonderful parable that Jesus gets to share for us. And I have a quick confession for you, as I wasn't here last week, we had uh, Jake Hess, he was preaching this last Sunday in this expression, and I was over covering in uh, Edmonds and in Wallingford, and I will say my confession is, is that I named that sermon The Conditions of the Heart, which is this sermon's Conditions of the Heart, and to me it's kind of a part two, but it is very much a part one for everybody here. Um, the nice thing is that as we have different uh, people preaching and different people speaking, the, the nice thing is that we get to see what kind of angles different people take. But last week when I was preaching, my title was Conditions of the Heart. And if I could go back, I would keep it the same, and I would just make this a part two in my mind. But to you all, it is very much Conditions of the Heart Part One, and I think you'll know why here pretty soon. So I hope that you got to turn there. Would you pray with me before we, before we begin? Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to worship your name, to give you glory. And we ask, God, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, and you would open our hearts to hear your word. To let the seed of the word produce good fruit on us. God, I pray that you would be with us and guide us. In Christ's name, amen. So, conditions of the heart. What does that mean? Jesus teaches, and through this kind of this past few chapters... We've moved from the question of who is Jesus, who Jesus is kind of continuing to answer for the people, to what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? And as he speaks into that, he begins to reveal the conditions of people's hearts. We had this bit of this case study in the past in, uh, in chapter 7 as we were looking at Simon and as we were looking at uh, the woman who both kind of came to Jesus Right, they came to him. Uh, they both had, Simon had this invitation, and the woman wanted to worship him, and we got to see their hearts kind of exposed before Jesus. But here in the parable of the sower, this story teaches us about the conditions of the heart and how our hearts receive the word. And what happens when the gospel takes root in a willing and noble heart. I'll be honest, I think my favorite passages in the New Testament are all of the parables of Jesus. They are my favorite. Because I love good stories and I love good storytellers. I remember when I was learning how to tell stories, when I was learning how to teach acting and teach drama, I was introduced to this storyteller named Mark Lewis. And Mark Lewis, he's this Pacific Northwest native. He's kind of a husky, older gentleman who had this really big beard who looked like a pirate because he wore the, the poet shirt. He had really tiny glasses and this just like really big smile on his face all the time. And he was very much this mentor of mine who we never necessarily met. 
Um, I would just study all of his storytelling methods and everything like that. But he's the one who taught me the power of story and the power of storytelling in word pictures. He would take out this invisible kind of paint box and he would open it up and he would teach us about blue nouns. He would teach us about yellow adjectives and red verbs. And you're like, what does that mean? I didn't even know either. But he would tell us these stories and what he would describe to us is not to just tell mere facts, but to show a story and to invite one in and unlock the imagination through pictures. Good storytelling is one that unlocks the imagination and kind of awakens the mind and brings people in to a picture, into a story. The most powerful stories are ones that we find ourselves in, ones that we are invited into. And Jesus is a master storyteller. He's a master storyteller. He uses blue nouns and yellow adjectives and red verbs. Jesus finds himself in this story in the midst of this big crowd. And Mark's gospel tells us that this crowd was so big that this was one of those moments that Jesus had to get on a boat and kind of be kind of out a little bit on shore just to address everyone. So Jesus here has this opportunity as this massive crowd among us, among him. But instead of just telling people that he's the Messiah, instead of just saying facts which are true, which is from Jesus, which are true, he tells them a story instead. He begins to develop and invite them in to a story, a story which most people won't even understand. Isn't that interesting? I think that's kind of interesting. Actually, I don't even think it's just more than interesting. I think that's bizarre. It's kind of a bizarre method of teaching if we don't know what he's doing. So it's important to understand first that Jesus' stories were not told just to bring us out of ourselves and into some type of fantasy or false reality. Jesus' stories were told for us to know ourselves. Simple stories about who we really are, called parables. Parables are for the heart, about the heart. So it's important for us to understand that when Jesus is telling this parable, he's telling stories of the heart. Let's read chapter, let's read verses four through eight together. As, this large, as a large crowd was gathering, the people were coming to Jesus from every town. And he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some seed fell among, along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away, since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, 
The thorns grew up with it and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. When it grew up, it produced fruit. A hundred times what it was sown. As he said this, he called out, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So we'll pause there. Jesus shares this common scene to strike the imaginations of the people. A sower going out to, to sow seed. Mundanely relatable, right? But the true message of the story is about how someone's heart receives the word, as he's going to show us. As he tells us later, the seed is the word, but to some standing, listening to Jesus, it's just the seed. It's just the seed. So the meaning of the message is camouflaged within the story for people eager to hear the truth. Those who are looking will find it. But those who are here just to listen to a good story will just hear a good story. This past week, I've been totally consumed with thinking about this, kind of answering this question as I've been reading this, this passage, which is why did Jesus tell them a parable when he could have just given them an answer? Why did Jesus tell them a parable when he could have given them an answer? What's his angle? Well, for one thing, I think what we should know is a, the, a bit of the history of parables, about how parables work. Parables are truth stories, and they're saturated in scriptures, saturated in them. One well-known that we often don't really think about is the prophet Nathan. When Nathan was the prophet who was serving King David... And Nathan had this task that he had to confront David over the sin of murder and adultery. If you're familiar with that passage, it's a big moment in David's journey that we get to see. But it's a dangerous assignment because no prophet could just go up to the king and just rebuke him, right? In a sense, that's like a death sentence. So it's a dangerous thing. So what's Nathan going to do? Nathan has to go up and he has to tell this truth, has to tell the truth to David, but he doesn't quite know how to do it. So instead of directly rebuking David, he tells him the story. He says, there were two men in a town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had tons of sheep, but the poor man had one sheep that he loved with all of his heart. And when a traveler came to the rich man, the rich man needed to provide food for this traveler. But instead of taking one of his own sheep, he went to the poor man and took his one and only sheep that he loved and killed it. Remember David, when he hears this story, what happens? It says that he burned with anger. He got really angry at this story that was happening, so much so that he says, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan gives the ultimate, the ultimate comeback statement of what? You are the man. You are the man. What happens within this parable? The story prepared David's heart to hear the truth that would awaken his conscience. 
this story unlocked his imagination, awakened his conscience to hear himself, to see his own heart within a story. And when he did, his eyes were opened. And then he writes about it in a lot of different psalms. Tim Keller, he says something some really good about the power of, of parables and of stories. He says, it's often said that we tell stories to know who we are, to understand ourselves and our place in the world. It's as though all of our stories are a way for the imagination to poke at the human condition, testing its borders and depths, looking for ways to understand the why behind the what of our lives. So if we go back to asking that question, why did Jesus give this parable instead of just giving them the answer? Because didn't Jesus want that? And at the end of it, he says, let anyone who hears, has ears to hear, listen. So why didn't he just tell them? I think that's exactly what his disciples wanted to ask him in verses 9 through 10. They say, what does this parable mean? So he says to them, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know. But to the rest, it is in parables. So that looking they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now here Jesus begins to unravel the meaning of why he wants to use parables, of his use of the parable to answer this question. Within the story reveals the universal conditions of the heart. And it's a lesson of how even the hearts that reject the gospel are still a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. So we're going to take these, these two kind of motions. We're going to take the, the conditions of the heart, and then we're going to talk about the descriptions of the heart that Jesus shows. So first, let's focus on the conditions of the heart that Jesus is teaching. This is a hard saying from Jesus. There's portions in Scripture that are kind of identified as hard sayings. This is one of them. Pointing back to the Old Testament, Jesus is saying that it's more likely that hearts will go unchanged in hearing the word than actually being changed. And that isn't a surprise to God. In fact, it's a fulfillment of it. It's a fulfillment of God's overall grand redemptive story, redemptive plan. Matthew 13 helps us understand this a bit too because as you, if you know, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and these are what's called the synoptic gospels, meaning that there are portions and stories and moments within each gospel that overlap, that tell the same story, but they tell it from slightly different angles. Some has more detail, others has less detail. And Luke, what we're reading now, has a little less detail, but Matthew gives us a little bit more. So Matthew 13 helps us, helps us out here by understanding the details that, that Luke left out, where it says, I, Jesus says, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, 
You will listen and listen and never understand. You will look and look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back. And I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear but didn't hear them. Stories may ignite the imagination, but they can't change the heart. Only the Spirit can do that. Jesus is saying to them, there is a grand, redemptive story unfolding before their eyes, but they don't perceive the significance of it. The truth remains hidden until eyes are opened and they see clearly. But... Blessed are you because you do see. It's a twofold thing. Yes, this is happening. There are hearts that will go unchanged, but blessed are you because you do see. Your heart has been changed. Don't take that lightly. Your eyes, your ears, and your hearts have been opened. So don't take it for granted. Take up your responsibility to walk in the truth that has been revealed to you. In other words, celebrate your gift of sight. Celebrate your gift of sight. I think that that is a challenging word for the consumeristic habits that we tend to have. We tend to treat the gathering of God's people in sometimes a mundane kind of way when we don't celebrate enough that our eyes have been opened. We are blessed. God's people, disciples, people who walk with Jesus are blessed. So do we walk like that? Do we celebrate that often? Do we gather together and celebrate that? I hope so. I think so. But we also need to know the truth. The condition of one's heart does have some determining factor as to whether or not there's any receptivity to the truth. Simon and the woman in the chapter before, they, I think they are real perfect case, kind of case studies of this. Simon, he heard the truth. He saw the truth. He saw Jesus. He heard what Jesus said. He saw Jesus do it. And yet he was completely repulsed by it. Repulsed by it, like grossed out. He saw the woman come and worship Jesus, and it was gross to him. But the woman heard the truth, saw Jesus... 
and it repeatedly expressed her love for him. Her heart was changed. Their actions exposed the condition of their heart. But Jesus explains further by not only providing the condition of the hearts, kind of being receptive to the word, he goes on to explain the descriptions of the heart. So let me draw your attention to verse 11, where, we begin to, where he begins to explain this parable and kind of break down the heart into four categories. The first one being a hardened heart. This is verse 11. Verse 11 and 12, sorry. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So we'll pause there and just consider that. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. In the church, we, we get to celebrate the victory of Jesus, of the resurrection. We celebrate it. And if we're going to go, if we're going to, if we're going to really celebrate it, every day is Easter, every Sunday is Easter to us, right? But we also need to acknowledge a little bit more often the fact that the devil wouldn't be called a prowling lion if he didn't have victims. The devil would not be called a prowling lion if he didn't have victims. There are those that are consumed, that are, have a heart that is hardened. That, Jesus tells us, the devil does come and take away the meaning and understanding of the gospel to them. So, 1 Peter tells us, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. So who, who, who is Jesus talking about then that is the victim of the devil being a prowling lion? For some, for those with a hardened heart, life has hardened them. So much so that the seed, that the, the gospel seed just bounces off. They may be hostile. They may be a hostile person. But a lot of times they're just uninterested. A lot of the times they're just uninterested. Their life has too many experiences that contradict the good news. I don't know if you've met someone like that. Someone who's been, in some ways, like Simon, repulsed by the gospel, even by maybe your testimony. I remember sharing my testimony with one of my friend's uh, dads. And I remember hearing that he had a, a particular dislike to testimonies. He didn't like them. And I remember sharing in boldness, being like, you know what? I'm a Christian. I'm going to share my faith, my faith with him. 
And as I began to do that, all he began to do was scoff at me. Like, oh, oh. And he's like, I like you, so I'm not going to hit you. But stop talking to me about that. And as a teenager, you know, as a younger person, I was like, okay. <laughs> I just don't want to get it. But there are people who are like that. I've heard stories, many of stories, of people showing that same type of demeanor and hardness towards the gospel. There might be someone that comes to your mind, pray for them. Because hard hearts need to be plowed by sorrow and disappointment so that God's word can take root. Let me say that one more time. Hard hearts need to be plowed by sorrow and disappointment so that they're softened, so God's word can take root. The next description that Jesus gives is a shallow heart. This is verse 13. Let's read this together. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in the time of testing. So what is he, what he's describing here as someone who has an emotional response to the gospel, but is never truly penetrated to the heart. One theologian, I think, describes it really well, where he says, these are the type of people who have been brushed by Christianity, who have been brushed by faith. I remember an old friend, an old friend when talking about faith and talking about what he believes. He comes, he, he would repeatedly say, oh yeah, like when we would talk about how we would go to church, oh yeah, I used to do that too. I used to do that too, but I'm over it now. Right? He had a life difficulty. He found comfort in the church. He got super involved. He got really excited about it. And then he found out that the church isn't always an emotive or a place of an emotive experience. And he had a season of being bored. And then what happened? That boredness, because it wasn't rooted, his faith wasn't rooted in the gospel. As soon as another hard spell came, he threw the whole thing out and rejected his faith entirely and said, oh yeah, I know what that's like because I was doing it a while, ab while ago. But guess what? I got bored with it. Perhaps there's someone who comes to your mind. Perhaps there's someone who comes to your mind who has a shallow heart. True faith puts down deep, sustaining roots in the mind and in the will. True faith is one that plants roots in the entire self. The third description that Jesus gives is, is really interesting to what I call an infested heart. Verse 14. As for the seed that fell among the thorns, 
These are the ones who, when they have heard, they go on their way and are choked with worries, with riches, and pleasures of life, and produce no mature fruit. This is the heart infested with the love for other things and is just not believing. This is the person who is consumed with the other ands, the other things. The one who is so caught up in all of the news and is so caught up in all of life's dramas that they're distracted from looking inwards into themselves. It's a heart that's been infested by other things, crowding them, blocking all of the soil. This is a heart that the good news is found on Amazon. This is the good news that's found in things. A heart moved and changed by the gospel is one that is able to remove the things and see them as stuff and look deeper within. But we need, we need God's help for that because how easy are we to get distracted? How easy is it for us to get caught up? Literally, like I think when I look at all of these things, the, the challenge, at least for Americans, at least for us, is that temptation to let everything else tell you what the good news is. Right? To let everything else tell you what you should be concerned about. To let everything else tell you what to buy, where to go, what to do. Those with an infested heart need to see themselves honestly for their soul's sake. But this final description that Jesus gives is one that I, I call a noble heart. We read verse 15 with me. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. Good soil brings good fruit. A heart undivided. A heart captured by goodness and truth and beauty. This is a heart of nobility. This is a heart moved and changed by the gospel. This parable that Jesus is giving us, painting this picture of the heart for the heart, is one that is meant to prod us and to see not necessarily our, ourselves as to say, maybe, I, maybe it is, I've had a hardened heart. Maybe it is to say, my heart is hardening. But I think that Jesus here is calling us to a heart of nobility. To comfort us in the truth that God's visible presence on earth, the church, is filled with noble hearts. 
is filled with noble hearts that produce good fruit. Blessed are you because you do see. For us to go around trying to decipher people's hearts and people's souls and the condition of them is only going to lead to an attitude of judgmentalism, right? It's only going to lead us to, to, if we're going to assume something that is God's to determine, there are ways that we can discern in some ways, yes, but the soul, so many people have changed. We ourselves have changed. That for us as the church, it's our task to leave changed hearts with the Lord. Let him change those hearts. Let him dig up the soil. And for us to walk in nobility. And for us to walk in truth. So as we're looking at this parable, as our hearts become moved and changed by Jesus' story, I want to ask how can the church join Jesus and sow seed that lands on good soil? And knowing that God alone saves people, right? What, what is our duty? Notice that, that the sower, the sower is not specifically answered. Jesus says the seed is the word. So who's the sower? We are the sower. The church is the sower. Anyone with the gospel to share the gospel is the sower. God alone is the one who makes it grow. So what do we do? What can we do? There's two things. First is that we practice nobility. We practice nobility. In a world saturated in hostile actions and motives, and I didn't, you got to hear me clearly, I didn't say by hostile actions. I said in hostile actions. Like we live in hostility, right? While Christians seek to follow Jesus in word and deed, we have to be mindful and know that we will suffer for it. And it is within that hostility that nobility will shine bright. It is in hostility that nobility shines bright. The more we practice what Jesus teaches, the more we encourage one another to do likewise, the more that we join together and serve, the more light that shines on darkness, the more nobility covers hostility. That, I think, is truly countercultural. Those are the stories that we hear that we're captivated by. The ones where the hero is put in a horrible situation and having the ability to choose revenge chooses forgiveness, right? The heart is brave, the, one, the, the hero becomes noble. The hero demonstrates bravery over cowardice. 
These are the stories that we gravitate to. But friends, these are the stories that we all share in. Because the world needs to see the light of Jesus. The way that God does that is to to place his visible church to go out and to be that light of nobility. The second thing, first we practice nobility, and the second is we become storytellers. As storytellers, the story of God in Christ redeeming the world has to be the air we breathe. We become storytellers. Friends, the gospel has to be our blue nouns, our yellow adjectives, and our red verbs. It has to be in everything that we do and everything that we share. One philosopher said, if hearts are going to be aimed towards God's kingdom, they'll be won over by good storytellers. I definitely agree with that. Good storytelling is one that captivates the imagination and opens up the heart to speak about the heart. Friends, in a, we live in a, now I said very hostile, that might have been a harsh word, but I still stand by it. But what we really live in is what, what we would call a, a post-truth culture. Post-truth culture, meaning facts and reason are no longer the leading force of how to explain truth to somebody. Feelings prevail, right? Post-truth culture is one where feelings prevail. So what are we going to do with that? Facts and reason... Facts and reason are meaningless, but stories, stories are our strongest ally. I think stories speak to the heart and speak truth and speak reason in a way that captivates the imagination. And so our posture then becomes like Jesus' posture. When he's speaking the truth, the gospel to the crowd... He's not hindered by the fact that people are going to say, nice story, and then walk away. He speaks the truth knowing that whatever the outcome, God's redemptive plan will prevail. Friends, when we get too caught up And all of the happenings in our lives are the stories we telling about God or are they about ourselves? Are the stories we telling about the things that we're doing, about the things we see, or are they about what truly matters? About how once my heart was hardened through a, a long process God softened my heart, and let me tell you a story about that. We have the ability, because we have the best story, 
to be good storytellers. So friends, as we think about what Jesus has done, about how he laid out these hearts, as he laid out the hardened heart, the shallow heart, the infested heart, and the noble heart, for those who call themselves disciples, remember, blessed are you, for you do see. What story are you telling? Is it one that's distracted? Or is it one that's been fostered supernaturally by the Spirit to tell a story of nobility? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to make our hearts noble. And we ask you, God, that the fruit that would be produced in our lives would be good fruit. And as we look around, as we live our lives day to day, in both the, the mundane moments and the extraordinary moments, that it would be saturated in the movements of grace. God, we thank you for Jesus. Because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, we are able to not just tell stories. We're able to tell the ultimate story, one that we ourselves are now in. So I pray, God, for everyone here, for all of us, to live our lives in a way that demonstrates nobility in a hostile world, that demonstrates bravery in a distracted world. And I pray that all of it would give you glory. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.